I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. We've got a good one for you today, haven't we, Alex? It's a little bit of a down the pub special in a way. Yay! Family today. Family time. Have with us the wonderful Andrew Dorman, who has been on before to talk about his PhD, niche study of uh, British troops in Ireland in the 18th century. But he's here today to do some early modern stuff with us, basically because Zach's forced him to, isn't that right? <laughs> yeah, when he described it as a down the pod, he's like, yes, I am reading off a Wikipedia page today. That is what is happening. <laughs> that is what is happening. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, you actually teach this subject. Give yourself some credit. Yeah. 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 What is this um, subject? Who was Marie Theresa and why is that forcing you to do a podcast on her? Well, I think she is well, she's one of my two favorite rulers in the early uh, modern period. Um, and I think if you bookend the period from, I guess, 1492 with the discovery of America and maybe 17, I guess, 83 or French Revolution ish, I think that's a fair way of uh, yeah. topping and tailing it. I think it begins with um, Isabella of Spain and then ends with Maria Theresa. So you've got these two fearsome women dominating Europe at that stage. And I think that's it's, it's a really interesting comparison you can draw between the two. But she's she's a really interesting character. So she's born in 1717. Um, and she's born into a Austrian family that's in a bit of a predicament because uh, they don't have any sons. <laughs> and in Europe, that's bad at that point. Uh, so her father, who is Holy Roman Emperor, Charles VI, he dedicates a substantial portion of the latter part of his life uh, towards trying to secure something called the pragmatic sanction. And that's going to come up a lot over the next 40 to 40, 40 minutes, let's be honest. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Maria is born into this and she is uh, raised as a traditional uh, court lady, Hofdame, if you want to call it that. Uh, because it's the Habsburg, she is married to one of her cousins. 
um, because let's face it, it's got to be inbreeding if it's the Habsburgs. Um, so her early life revolves primarily around education. By all accounts, she's a very bright, clever woman. Uh, she learns how to horseback ride. She can uh, shoot a bow, uh, very artsy, uh, loves music. And with her marriage in 1736 to Francis Stephen of Lorraine should have theoretically made Francis Stephen, the next Holy Roman Emperor, her empress, solve state finances. It was supposed to be this wonderful sort of coup, I guess, uh, marital coup. Um, so her early life really is focused on being sort of <laughs> token wife, I suppose. Uh, it's not, it's never expected that she will take up as much power as she has and this pragmatic sanction that uh, Charles spent so much time working for is essentially for her to be, it, it allows a woman to be a temporary placeholder until an emperor is found. That's kind of, I guess, a, a quick summary of it. This should in theory mean that when her father dies, she becomes empress and then family becomes emperor, but that's not really what actually happens. <laughs> I, I get the sense that Beth and I are really going to like her. Mm. Yeah, I, I get this as well already. I mean, she is a boss bitch, if you'll pardon the academic expression. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and once we get onto her later stuff uh, with her daughters, uh, she turns into sort of this matriarchal, like, mafioso boss. Uh, she, she's pretty awesome. Yeah. As you were talking about the, this this placeholder, as you said, of allowing her to sort of be in power, how, do, how does she come to power? How does she start to find herself in this position of, of authority that maybe we wouldn't normally expect of a woman of the pit? This, this, again, all circles back to this, as I've said several times, this pragmatic sanction. It's, so Charles spends most of his reign getting Austria involved in wars that it shouldn't have been in. Uh, and in the process, bankrupting the country. He then also spends the latter part of his reign trying to make sure that the European powers will not take advantage of his daughter when she comes to the throne. So a lot of Austria's treasury goes towards either military escape aids against the Turks or uh, the Russians, and then she gets involved in a war called the Fourth Opposed Secession, which is fine. And then the rest of it is spent on bribes. Uh, so, for example, she promises, or, or her, her father, Charles, promises to the Dutch that the Austrians will disestablish their East India Company, which had been competing with the Dutch East India Company. She tells France, or, or he tells France, that he'll give her some very contentious parts that France had been wanting. He promises Prussia something else. So he, he kind of tailors his bribes to the European power, which is quite interesting, I think. And the European powers take these and say, absolutely, we will agree to this. We will allow your daughter to take the throne of Austria. So her initial appointment in 1740 is Archduchess of Austria alone. She becomes Queen of Hungary, Bohemia, and then Empress later on. But initially, she is just Archduchess of Hungary. And it's those later things where people have a lot of issues uh, with her. Uh, so her coming to the power is, as I say, very artificial in that way, uh, mm. because it, it's based entirely on her father having secured all of these agreements, which when he dies, most of the European powers immediately renege on because they're bad people, <laughs> uh, as is tradition in this part of Europe in that, in that period. So he dies in 1740, and she is thrust onto the throne. Uh, Austria at this stage is 
I think uh, H.M. Scott describes it best. It's a dynastic union of separate and diverse provinces with very little in common except the ruler. They've got their own administrative structures. And basically, it's exactly what it had been 100 years prior. So it's a it's a smorgasbord mess of geriatric administrators who are very bitterly clinging to power, probably very sort of misogynistic. <laughs> and um, this young woman takes the throne of this uh, mess and is now confronted with a lot of very opportunistic rulers in Europe who are going against what they promised her father and are going to take advantage. And that kind of brings us into what is known as the War of the Austrian Secession. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. seriously, I was going to say, so that's the point where everybody realises that she's actually quite competent and just merely accepts the situation and moves on. Uh, that's yes, yes, yes. No, yeah. so what happens is all of the penises involved kick off uh, mm-hmm. because there is a young female on the throne. So tell us about this war. Okay, so this is one of three major secession wars in Europe in the 18th century. And uh, conveniently, they're all called the War of the Ex-Secession. So <laughs> back in the start of the century, you've got the War of the Spanish Secession, and then you've got the War of the Polish Secession, which is less important. And then you've got the War of the Austrian Secession. So with the, in the case of Austria, the issue is that Maria Theresa had a number of cousins whose claim to the Holy Roman Empire thrones pretty valid and one of them married someone that Bourbon France had a lot of time for um, so this uh, marital union kind of places uh, Austria in a state of well, who was actually in charge here and as a result of this you have alliances starting to form and France is looking to be quite aggressive but the main aggression doesn't come from anyone who cares about this kind of uh, sort of secession policy. It comes from Prussia, um, because Prussia also has a hot new young ruler on the throne, except he's more of like a dorky nerd called Frederick the Great. Uh, this <laughs> incredibly, um, well, at the time he was considered extremely effeminate, uh, music-loving, not very masculine at all. Now, his legacy is that of one of the greatest generals in European history, but he was a firm believer that Maria Theresa was an opportunity waiting to happen. And Prussia pounces on Austria. So like most European wars, the War of the Austrian Secession is a collection of other wars. And the important one from Maria Theresa's perspective is the Silesian War, which is Frederick's invasion of Silesia. So it's, 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 a, it's a mess, really. <laughs> Which, to be honest, are. as soon as you mention the words Austria and Habsburg, it's never going to be simple, is it? No, no. It's either inbreeding or some kind of collective disaster. <laughs> Europe at war, surely not as well. As if the the last thing is, you know, to be expected, a war, of course. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's it's the natural thing to do. And it, it's, I guess, naturalness stems from uh, Frederick's awful childhood. <laughs> and I guess that the experience of Prussia for a hundred years prior, because I guess to understand Austrian history in this period, you do need to consider Prussia, because it's the one that undoes the Holy Roman Empire in in a way, because Prussia post Thirty Years' War, which was almost a century beforehand, it had been ravaged in that conflict, it had been brutalized, and there's four leaders consecutively with varying names of Frederick 
<laughs> you have Frederick, the great elector. Then you have Frederick Wilhelm. Then, you, oh, sorry, Frederick Wilhelm, great elector. Then you have Frederick. Then you have Frederick Wilhelm the first, who is different to the first Frederick Wilhelm. And then you've got Frederick the Great. So it's extremely confusing again. But these four Fredericks drag Prussia into modernity. And Frederick the Great's dad, Frederick Wilhelm, was an awful human being. Terrible guy. He killed Frederick's best friend in front of him um, because they, he tried to desert from the army to spend time with Frederick. And he brutalized the boy. He was he had a strange infatuation with soldiers. Like I know there's a whole thing about men in uniform, but he took it to another level. Like he set up his private army. They were called the Potsdam Grenadiers. So he went around Europe cherry picking the tallest men he could find. Oh, most of whom were Peter the Great. Yeah, swapsy with him. So they would Peter the Great collected dwarves. So they swap <laughs> giants for dwarves with each other. I mean, that's min-maxing a market to a whole different level, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they literally, like they were doing panini football stickers, would swap. Yeah. Uh, and these poor guys, most of them are like, were, they had gigantism or other sort of, you know, conditions. Uh, they were squeezed into these uniforms to parade around for Frederick the Great's dad. It was an awful life. Um, they never saw battle, of course, because they were they could hardly load, but they just marched around for him. Um, I mean, Peter so the Great's a lot nicer to the dwarves. They ride everywhere. He, he likes this is hilarious. He likes to have a dwarf on his lap when he travels, and he throws little dwarf parties at court as well. So, Beth, there was one, and and like, they were literally like his besties. And there was one where two of them got married, and they had a huge reception where they all dressed up as animals, and all these dwarves oh, were no. up as little bears. It's yeah, it, oh. it's bonkers, but um, it it wasn't. They weren't mistreated. The ones that went towards Russia weren't mistreated yeah there's a th there is a theory that peter the great wasn't actually peter the great after he came back from his european tour have you heard that conspiracy no that, like, brilliant Go on. <laughs> that he, he visited the netherlands and they kidnapped him and put a tall dutch guy in his place and that's why like saint petersburg is built to like really dutch designs and that's why he was able to bring so much european which is just such a like western europe superiority conspiracy theory that, like... <laughs> that he spent all that time traveling in holland and living in south london and going to paris and just liked what he saw and transplanted yeah. his own country it has to be one of us going there to fix them right yeah exactly it's the most colonial way of looking at it ever <laughs> um well, so he, so he's dead now, anyway. Uh, at this stage, but it's not weird. It's circling back, I guess, to the point. Oh, that is a far more interesting, perhaps, uh, topic. Um, so his dad, going back to Frederick briefly, his dad creates this fantastic Prussian army. Frederick comes to the throne. No one takes him seriously, much like no one was taking Maria Theresa seriously, and he wanted to prove himself. And the best way to prove himself was to attack. The Holy Roman Empire, which a lot of people in Prussia viewed as a yoke that had burdened them since the 1630s. Mm. Um, and they've been gradually separating from that. Uh, well, it's his religion again, isn't it? The Catholic Holy Roman Emperor and then this highly Protestant area of what's going to become Germany. Yeah, I don't think they ever truly got over the whole 30 years war and no Protestant Holy Roman Emperor thing. Yeah. Um, and the uh, the religious dynamic certainly plays a role because Maria Theresa was a staunch Catholic, and in fact, one of her biggest criticisms is she was a vehement anti-Semite, um, far worse than Frederick. And uh, a lot of uh, Jewish merchants and such fled north, uh, where Frederick sort of gave them like colonies or uh, within. 
uh, Prussian cities uh, to trade because they were driven out by uh, Austrian administrators. And inside this is one more small Frederick anecdote, which kind of gives a wonderful insight into his personality. He loved music, but when concerts played, a lot of people didn't appreciate music. So he filled the auditorium with his army and he would stand behind the conductor. And if the conductor made a mistake, he would stop the performance and make him go back and play it again. That's an ultimate level of pedantry there. (laughs) That was wrong, dude, again. Imagine when you're playing to like a, a room full of people who can kill you. <laughs> Maria, coming back to, to Maria. Yeah, I, am lo- I am loving these Frederick anecdotes, but this yeah. is about Maria. Yes. Uh, maybe you need to do another one on Frederick. Um, oh, God. With Maria, how is, how is Maria handling the threats from, from this war? How is, what, what kind of steps does she take to, I suppose, obviously, to prevent? any further loss of territory and so on and so forth. Okay, so if you could picture like spinning plates and then you set the plates on fire, um, then the plates are being guarded by really old men who don't want to give up positions of power. That's essentially what Maria is confronted with. Um, And at first, it is a very one-sided engagement. Uh, Her army is very weak. Her admin is very poor. Her lands are ripe for plunder. And the Prussians just march into... Silesia, this very mineral-rich territory, uh, and conquer it very quickly. Um, the, the key battle is this Battle of Molwitz, in which uh, Frederick actually runs away, and the Austrians almost win, but then the Prussian army manages to win without their glorious leader. Um, just, uh, again, he's not a great guy. So Austria is kind of reeling from this shock, but she then begins to engage in a fantastic diplomatic campaign, particularly with Hungary, because she's lost the support of most of the Austrian nobility at this stage. They see Frederick as potentially not a successor to her, but a a far more potent individual. However, the Hungarians, who are sort of a proud, staunch, traditional people, um, and she appeals to to them and, I guess, utilizes her femininity in a really clever way. So. First of all, in her initial appeal, she takes on this role of sort of Madonna with a child. I don't, I don't think it's her baby. It could be her baby, or it could be someone else. She brings a baby anyway. Um, so it appeals. Look at this the... child I found. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who's going to say no? Find me a baby, okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, uh, but I'm pretty sure it was her baby. I can't remember. Um, and she presents this baby and essentially uh, implies that Austria, she is Austria and must be protected and she is the, the, the mother and the Hungarians can play the role of the macho father which all these Hungarian cavalry you know, masculine dudes love. Oh, come and so. protect me big man. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But then as well as doing that she also then reverses things and sort of earns their respect because the traditional hungarian coronation ceremony requires someone to ride a horse quote unquote properly aka not side saddle and charge up a hill salute four points to the compass in it with a sword there's a whole process and she does this as if she were a man um so this sort of very dynamic way of looking at diplomacy really aids her and the, the forces she managed to raise from Hungary basically saves the kingdom uh, because I think it's something she raised maybe 20,000 cavalry and they managed to sort of stem the Prussian advance and hold it back so it, that in itself is 
for someone who has just come to power and has not really received all that much training for you know ruling a country it's a brilliant brilliant campaign so that's sort of diplomacy wise on the home front her main thing is to de-age her administrative program uh, so she fires most of the octogenarians <laughs> and instead brings in sort of new, very well educated new exciting individuals um uh, Haugwitz and von Kaunitz in particular um one jumps in a sort of minister of defense i think the other is minister of finance and they begin looking throughout europe and thinking okay where can we copy like who has good ideas so you've got these new bubbling with enlightenment ideal well-educated ministers compared to the geriatrics that have been there um so this initial sort of rush to kind of prop up austria uh kind of sets her up for what comes later on but the fact that she survives it all in 1740 1742 is a, to us a bit of a miracle i think she reminds me of Episode two of History Hat, when we looked at war queens and we talked about people like Katarina Sforza and Queen Zinger or Enzinger, I can't remember. She especially would, she was like a chameleon depending on what she wanted out of the Portuguese at the time. Like yeah. she'd either be fierce warrior queen or, oh, help me please, I'm so vulnerable. And it just seems that women, and she's a similar period, I think like a hundred years before, it seems that if you want to get by as a woman in this period, you just got to be prepared to wear whatever hat you need to at any given time to get what you want out of the, uh, the patriarchal penises that think they're better than you. And I just wonder like how, when she was doing the whole appealing to the Hungarian nobility, like, how deep into the back of her head were her eyes rolling? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, well, but survive she does. So yes. where does she go from here? Yeah, well, having, I guess, survived again this initial period, um, she grinds towards a, a peace, uh, a peace is resolved, the Peace of Dresden in 1745. Um, this war of the Austrian secession has also led to fighting elsewhere in Europe, uh, including on the British Isles, because this coincides with Bonnie Prince Charlie and his attempts. <laughs> I think would be the best way of putting them. Um, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. But for this theatre, it kind of boils down uh, around 1745 with the piece of Dresden. And a lot of... She, she, she looks over sort of her territory and sort of Germany, generally speaking, and she sees a lot of the, a lot of the allies of Frederick had experienced quite bad occupations. Um, they distrusted Prussia and they began to sort of rethink their allegiances between Berlin and Vienna. 
And most importantly, the rival emperor that had been causing her so much issue, which had led to the Austrian secession issue, gave up his sort of, he, he lost his appeal. So she is then crowned empress and her husband, Francis Stephen, is crowned emperor. So 1745 marks the point at which she can be declared empress of the Holy Roman Empire. Up until that point, she was acquiring queenships <laughs> and dukedoms, uh, but now she is officially uh, Empress Maria Theresa. And she continues on this, this path of reform because she knows that Frederick is likely to strike back again. Uh, the war comes well, to a close. he finished running now. Oh, yeah, he came back. He, <laughs> yeah, he, he bailed out to that first battle, was told by someone, oh, by the way, you won, and then came back saying, what a tactical victory that was for me. I'm a great. <laughs> He sounds like a Trump in a wig. He became quite competent, though. Okay. This is the thing. I, I guess he's, I think, referring to what Trump will be doing with this service. Um, but he, he's still lurking very much in the background. Maria, this Silesia territory was officially transferred to Prussia with the end of the war in 1748 proper, because that ends the war on a global level, because, as I said, fighting was taking place everywhere. Um, and the, the Empress Maria Theresa was looking at Silesia thinking, that's ours, we're going to get this back. So she spends this interwar period from 1748 to 1756 transforming diplomacy and the Austrian army and trying to, it, it's kind of entering this, we will gain back what is rightfully ours phase, I suppose. That's a pretty impressive turnaround again. Yeah, does he know? Does he know she's coming for him? He must do. He must. He's a smart cookie. Yeah. And the the Seven Years' War in Europe kicks off with him preemptively attacking Saxony. So I think he he's well aware of what's coming. Um, but he's completely outmaneuvered politically in the Seven Years' War by uh, Maria Theresa. So not only had she been sharpening her army and preparing that, she'd been creating all of these incredibly bizarre alliances given the balance of power in Europe. Um, she secured an alliance with France, the traditional enemy of the Holy Roman Empire, which completely turns the balance of power in Europe on its head. And, and not only that, she uh, <laughs> has this wonderful moment with the Tsarina of Austria and forms this union of empresses. So you have Russia, Austria, and France all ganging up on Prussia. <laughs> Yeah, that, it, it, it should have been pretty quick. Um, had things played out differently in the Seven Years' War, I think we probably wouldn't hear very much about Frederick the Great. Um, unfortunately, he is called Frederick the Great for a reason, and the war does not play out in Maria's favour. Uh, she does actually win some battles, contrast compared to what happened previously. Uh, but Frederick smashes the French in an afternoon at the Battle of Rossbach. And unfortunately, Maria Theresa's alliance with Austria, or, or so with Russia, collapses when the, the Tsarina Elizabeth dies. The new Tsar, Peter III, takes the throne, and he is, for lack of a better term, a Frederick fanboy, and in an act of broism, decides to pull out of the war. I oh, guess. He's uh, an absolute <laughs> well, isn't he? Yeah, just the worst. <laughs> um, I've really told this story before, like, so this is Catherine the Great's husband. Um, yeah. And you've got, like, the glorious scenario where he won't have sex with her and they sit in bed and he plays with his soldiers and she has to do all of the canon sound effects and stuff while they sit in bed. 
In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Bed playing soldiers. I mean, that's, I'm not going to lie. That doesn't sound like a particularly bad deal. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm you down. You have to shave your legs for that, right? Playing toy soldiers, making big banging noises. Like, I don't think that's necessarily a bad deal <laughs> at all. Yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> we just outed ourselves, Dorm. <laughs> I don't think it's used... to anybody listening to this that us lot are losers, though. It used to be cool until their history podcast made us not cool. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> um, so yeah, setting aside Catherine the Great's terrible bedroom life. <laughs> uh, Maria is... A, as I said she's a transformed leader in this uh, in this war, and I think that it, it speaks very well of her capabilities as a military leader, as as well as a leader of, of the Austrian nation, um, that she's able to grind down uh, the Prussian army to the point where they, they Frederick's on the ropes, and it's referred to as the miracle of Prussia that he survives. So it's it's a very impressive campaign. Uh, both dip- diplomatically and militarily. And worth bearing in mind that a lot of her commanders at this stage were Irish. Go on, the boys. <laughs> <laughs> so so just sort of a question there for me from before with the Seven Years' War, how does it then end up for her? What's the state of play for Maria at the end of the Seven Years' War? It's a complete waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't get Silesia back. Uh, Frederick is still independent, so nothing's really changed there. Uh, she's led most of the youth of her kingdoms, which is great. Um, oh, I, but I suppose if you wanted to look at a positive, she has consolidated things and she's united them. She's given them sort of a, a sense of maybe not hope, but togetherness that really hadn't existed uh, under her father. And she's completely revolutionized the way things are conducted at, at court as well. Mm-hmm. And she's having a lot of children. <laughs> yeah, I had a look at her earlier. She, I mean, she took baby making machine to to the like. She took that definition and ran with it. I think. Yeah, sixteen. Not bad. We'll get to, <laughs> we'll get to her uh, fertility uh, and mm. her personality in a minute. But before we do, she makes other reforms as well, doesn't she? Yes, and I think these are. This is the thing that I think is the most fascinating about her that she is a firm believer in, like. Uh, nurture over nature i guess and her reforms of the austrian education system are extraordinarily modern Mm. uh but yet hark back to some very classical ideas uh so she completely changes the way primary school education is done uh she makes it compulsory in the first instance and then she breaks it into a tier system that's quite similar to the schools we have today. So you have a lyceum and then a gymnasium, uh, which offers sort of a broader education when one gets older. And then she splits it in two, where you have uh, technical schools and you had high schools for academic subjects. So this is quite a revolutionary way of doing it. And it's I think it's the system that Austria to this day still uses. 
Um, and in incorporating that across the entire sort of Austrian empire, it homogenizes everything and allows for sort of transfer of information that it provides standard qualifications as to, to that alone warrants huge praise. I feel, um, outside of education, as I mentioned prior, she transforms the Austrian armed forces. And a lot of that comes down to bringing in sort of external advice. She is a staunch advocate in plagiarism and borrowing the best from what we see elsewhere. So she looks at Prussia, looks how they do their military things. Okay, how can we do that? And she'll bring in or Irish officers or French officers, whoever will serve under her to um, sort of facilitate It's exactly what Peter did in Russia like a generation before, wasn't it? It was just implant. It's like, we're clearly backwards compared to what's going on over there. So I will just offer them loads of money to come and do it for me. Yeah, and I think so much of the Enlightenment just boils down to who can plagiarize better than anyone else. Yeah. And she did the same, similar sort of patronization of the arts and music and this sorts of thing. And as I mentioned prior, her one sort of great failing, which I think when, because as I say, I, I tend to teach this course, the course I teach this uh, or subject on is quite comparative. And when one compares her to, say, what's happening in the Dutch Republic, or uh, in places like uh, under in Italy, under say Pope Julius, you have a bit more of a religious toleration going on. But because she is so staunchly Catholic, I think that does hamper her a little bit. So she doesn't get the benefit of um, say Huguenot traders or Jewish traders to the same extent that other rulers do. But what she does is still extremely impressive and really modernizes Austria and places it in a position where it can be a major player. And without her. Austria would have just collapsed uh, later on, but I guess we'll talk about legacy towards the end. <laughs> so, just because obviously we've talked a great deal about the things that she's done and the, the you know the wars and what she was involved in, maybe more on a and a and sort of looking at like the outside of Maria's life. What about her inward side? I suppose you would describe as like her own personality, her family, and so on. As you mentioned, very brief, we said earlier, sixteen children. So yeah. basically the most fertile woman in Europe, surely, at this time. <laughs> every, yeah. Everything you've described, she was basically pregnant while she was doing it. Yeah. Mathematically, it has to be something like that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think she would have much of a break. Yeah. Well, I've just I've just had a look, and she gives birth to her first child. So she's born in 1717, yeah. Yeah. She gives birth to her first child in 1737. That's a year after to... she's married. Hmm? That's a year after she's married. Yes, yeah. Um, and then her last child, she gives birth um, at the age of 39. So she had 16 pregnancies in 19 years. That's good innings. That's some going. That is <laughs> some going. And she must have basically been incontinent by the time she was 40. That's okay. So, you know, there's no such thing as bladder control. No. Was she... Um, have any time to have any influence over these children is she grooming them i mean and what is she like is she i mean like i'm thinking of other women who had lots of children and were basically mad and not very good at raising them and i'm thinking queen victoria yeah uh, well I, at the risk of being a little bit dark most of them died <laughs> well, not most really? I mean, she lost six um uh which percentage wise at the time wasn't that bad uh, the Austrian court was actually renowned for being quite pox-ridden and quite diseasey anyway, for whatever reason. Um, 
So she loses a, a number of her children, but those that survive, she has quite a domineering parenting style. Mm. Uh, there's a motto that's applied to Austria uh, called Alia Belia Gerant to Felix Austria Nube, which basically translates to uh, others make war, you happy Austria marry. Um, so she used her children as diplomatic pawns. Okay. That, that being said, though, she took a vested interest in her children, particularly her daughter, Marie Antoinette, whom I may be familiar to uh, listeners in some capacity. Uh, some of the letters do survive between her and Marie Antoinette. Um, I'm not going to read out the one where she gives her sex advice because I couldn't find it. Uh, <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> but there's a lot of stuff about how best to please your husband. And I've got the, the there's, a, there's a transcription here, and I think it, it's quite telling of the relationship between her. It's very more sort of master and apprentice than it is mother and daughter, but you do get a little bit of parental advice in it as well. Um, so she begins, my dear daughter, which is nice. Do not take any recommendations. Listen to no one if you would be at peace. Have no curiosity. This is a fault which I fear greatly for you. Avoid all familiarity with your inferiors. So basically, stop talking to the plebs. <laughs> um, and then she goes on to give sort of advice to how to navigate court. So reply amiably to everyone with grace and dignity, if, if can, if you will. Uh, you must learn to refuse, which I think is quite interesting. And then as, it, as she goes on, in the king, you will find a tender father. This is the king of France. Uh, in the king, you are Louis XV. If, in the king, you will find a tender father. He will be your friend if you deserve it. Put entire confidence in him. You will run no risk. Love him. Obey him. Seek to divine his thoughts. You cannot do enough on this moment when I am losing you. Concerning the Dauphin, I shall say nothing. You know my delicacy on this point. So clearly, she's not that happy with what's going on, but she knows that she can trust at least the king, and she's directing her daughter towards the king, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, and then she tells tells Marie Antoinette to reread the letter every month to kind of help her to stay the course. Um, and she said, love your family, be affectionate to them, your aunts as well as your brothers-in-law and sisters-in-law. But then she just ends it, your mother. So it's a little bit utilitarian, but you do get a bit of an insight there as well, which I think is quite interesting. I think she's a, she almost comes across as like, um, well, I, any of us, particularly daughters who have got mothers, we've all had those moments where it's like, we've had that letter, it's like, it's concerning, and da, 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 but it's still very much, I am your mom. I am your mom. Like, it, we've all had those moments. I'm sure that those of us, I'm sure Alex can agree. We all have moments with our mothers like that. Um, so I can, I can imagine the, her reading this letter and then just going, Oh, mother, you know, I can yeah. her reading it at the other end. Can yeah. just, I can see that image, but she comes across as a really, um, like she seems like we'd almost say like a modern woman. Like she, she's done it all. She's got the family. She's raised her kids and has married them off to various people. She's been ruling an empire. Like she literally has has got all of her eggs in her, in one basket. Yeah, and, yeah. And I think there's a there's a lovely quote in the middle there where she says, "The only true happiness in this world lies in a happy marriage." I know whereof I speak because she had quite a happy marriage. Mm. So she she she's well aware that a lot of the marriages she might have sent these kids obviously weren't happy but she's trying her best to make them as happy and sort of pleasant as possible yeah um, so it's fascinating and um her relationship then with her husband is 
again, as I said, she's happy. She, she, it is a love match, and um, they've got quite a happy life. And when she, or when he dies, reasonably young, uh, she goes into a long period of mourning. I'm pretty sure she's like presumably of exhaustion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his back is broken. <laughs> uh, and she, I think, she only wears black thereafter. But she's again, very Queen Victoria, e isn't she? A little, yeah. There's a lot of sort of inspiration here, but I don't know if Queen Victoria ever then took her, because, well, well, of course, she wouldn't have, but um, what Maria Theresa does, having lost her husband, she takes her son and rules in sort of a co-op state with him. So it sort of teaches him the ropes while she's still alive and can, like, yeah, pass on Victoria all the knowledge. Doing that. She ain't giving no. up to nobody. <laughs> what a chest. Do it yourself. <laughs> um, so you have sort of a... Uh, and I sort of, towards the end of her life, it becomes a little bit more sort of uh, preparing her son to rule in her stead. And I think so many of the lessons that are passed on to her son, Joseph, are then borne out for the next, or for the rest of sort of this survival of the Austrian Empire until Napoleon happens. I was going to say, so, I mean, what is her, I, obviously, just in terms of breeding, there's a legacy there, but in, in different aspects as well. What is her legacy? Obviously, you said they're still using educational reforms now yeah i, I heard uh, most of the or a good number of the fancy buildings built in vienna were renovated in some part by her so i guess physical legacy you've got that uh she brought austrian hungary back together in a way that ha- no one had prior and that relationship is cemented going forward and i think austria hungary is one of napoleon's greatest enemies when one looks further down the line and of course as one gets into the 20th century, they're still united. So one could argue that's entirely her fault, um, if you wanted it to. Um, of course, her efforts to maintain a balance of power in Europe and to keep Prussia in check lead to this web of marriage networks that in turn informs a lot of what happens later on in Europe. And kind of, one could argue allows the formation of the concert of Europe post-Napoleon, where everyone sort of comes together and thinks no more war. Um, she's an f- absolutely fascinating character. And yeah, she did have her flaws and her, her critics, and those are completely valid. But I think as a ruler, um, one cannot consider 18th or indeed 19th century history without at least considering her impact. And she modernized Austria to the point which hadn't been seen before. So, Dorman, if you just very quickly, I just want to ask one final thing. If you had to sum her up in one word, what would you sum her up as? Intimidating. <laughs> I was going to go with fierce. Yeah, yeah awesome, absolutely. Yeah. Intimidating, fierce, bloody powerful as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but an absolutely fascinating character, and I'm going to have to go and find out more about her now as well. So, thank you very much for that, Dorman. Thank you very much for joining okay. us and telling us all about. Maria Theresa, she's an absolutely fascinating character. I look forward to being corrected by someone who's actually written a book about her. (laughs) (laughs) Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop 
supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.